Amen. I wonder if any of you have ever looked back on your life and wish you could have a do-over. Have you ever had a moment like that? Maybe it's one of those embarrassing moments and you thought, I wish I wouldn't have tripped on that uh, sidewalk when I was walking through campus. Or maybe it's the test you did not study for. And you thought, if I could just have that one night right back so I could study again. Or maybe it was something more serious than that where you wish... You know, if I could have spoken up in that moment, or if I could have, you know, thought of that quick enough to be able to say, have you ever wanted a do-over? Well, in golf, they call that a mulligan. And when I play golf, I need several mulligans. That's just the type of golf that I play. But, you know, part of participating and watching sports is thinking if that one little thing could have changed. And I know some of you are rehearsing some of those things from yesterday in your mind right now. Just one little change, one little difference, what, it really, what a massive outcome difference it could have meant. But there's some famous sports blunders that I'm sure the athletes would like to be able to go back and do over if given the chance. In 1994, Larry Walker was playing for the Expos in Los Angeles against the Dodgers. And Mike Piazza, he is... Uh, Playing for the Dodgers, he fouls the ball out off the first baseline into the stands, and Larry Walker runs into the stands, maybe you remember this, and he catches the foul ball, and the guy's out. And so he takes that ball, and he tosses it to a kid who's standing next to him, forgetting that that was only the second out, and somebody's on first, and they start running, and I think they make it to third whenever that Larry Walker asks for the ball back so that he can go and make the save. I wi- I'm sure he wishes he could have a mulligan in a moment like that. Um, In 2008, rookie wide receiver Deshaun Jackson catches a pass from Donovan McNabb and the field is wide open. He's running for the end zone. His very first NFL touchdown play. He catches and he runs and he's so excited that he celebrates by dropping the ball as he crosses over the goal line. As they review, they realize the ball dropped before he crossed the goal line. And the touchdown is called back, and you think, I wonder how many times, I wish I could have that one play back. If I could, just a half a second longer with the ball. Well, what about you? I'm sure if we're honest today, there are all kinds of things that you can rehearse in your mind of moments where you wish you could have a mulligan, an opportunity you wish that you had a do-over. Maybe it was in a job, maybe it was in school. Maybe it was in a relationship that you wish you could just go back and do something just a little bit different. Let's be honest, perhaps it was this morning. You wish you could have a do-over with this morning in the way that you interacted with others. We all know what it's like to want a do-over. Well, God's love toward us is so redemptive that even when we think we have blown our chances, he regularly offers us a mulligan. We call that new morning mercies, brand new mercies for every single day. Several weeks ago, we started a series where we've been looking at stories in the scriptures of what happens when God gets hold of somebody's life. Jesus is in the life-changing business. That's just what he does. He does not leave you the same. He changes you. And over the last several weeks, we have seen example after example of people who have been set free, of people that have been set loose, of people that have been set on fire with the gospel. And so today we're going to look at the story of a man who got a do-over, a man so desperate for a chance to try one more time. 
He had followed Jesus faithfully only to turn his back to him or back on him in Jesus' most critical moment. But Jesus offers him the opportunity to try again, to do over, a mulligan. And it made a massive difference, and we're so grateful for it today because the truth is it reaches into history and impacts our life even this morning. So this time, he tees it up and he hits it straight. Well, in the book of Acts, which is where we're going to be, Luke gives us a clear account of how the greatest movement the world has ever known gets its start. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples, those followers of Jesus that are gathered there, and just shows up in such a miraculous way that people just start believing one after the other in the message about Jesus. So in this moment, Peter becomes the chief spokesperson for the church, and Luke records that daily people are being added to the number of those that believe in Jesus. And in chapter 3, Peter and John are walking up to the temple complex when they pass a man who is lame and has been lame since birth. He's out there begging for someone to extend to him some sort of blessing, a financial blessing. And Peter hears him and he turns around and says, you know, I don't have any of that. But what I do have, I'll give you, which is the name of Jesus. And with the name of Jesus, this lame man is miraculously healed. Well, of course, it causes such a dramatic commotion that Peter takes great opportunity and decides to stand up and start preaching. And so Peter and John and the others are preaching the gospel. And, uh, you know, up until this point, the believers have not really experienced serious threat to their message. They haven't experienced serious persecution. But chapter 4 is the turning point, and that's where we're going to be this morning. As we see John and Peter preaching, and then all of a sudden, their message is interrupted. So I'm going to read to you Acts 4, verses 1 through 4 as we begin. As they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus that re- the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So according to Luke... The Sadducees are the particular ones who come and interrupt Peter and John in their preaching. The Sadducees represented one of three schools of thought among first century Jews of that day. There were the Pharisees, there were the Essenes, and there were the Sadducees. Now religiously, the Sadducees only accepted the written Torah um, for what it was. They didn't abide by the oral traditions around the Torah that uh, the Pharisees would abide by. They also rejected the idea of angels, of demons, of immortality. They didn't even believe in the resurrection for the dead. In other words, what you see is all there is, is essentially how they saw the world. But in some ways, the Sadducees are more political than they are theological. They were the Jewish kingmakers under the Roman uh, occupation at this time. These were the ones who had it in with the Roman leaders so that they could influence who became the Jewish leaders of the day. And they were much more interested in power than they were in theological purity. So these are the guys who approach Peter and John after this miraculous healing there at the temple uh, complex. Verse 2 says, they are greatly disturbed. 
And the reason they're disturbed is because they're proclaiming resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, we've already said that they disagree that that was a real thing. So perhaps they were saying, you know, that's so not true. I can't believe they would be saying this. But it doesn't appear that that's why they are disturbed by the message. Because we know the Pharisees believed in resurrection for the dead. But they weren't trying to stop them. There was something different going on here. And what we find out is they probably had a political issue with this. Because very often, whenever somebody was preaching resurrection of the dead, it would bring about the potential for revolution or revolt. Which would really challenge the status quo. And the Pharisees weren't very interested in seeing the status quo change because that's how they were able to hold on to power. So what we see unfold is that the Sadducees, in this moment, become the chief enemies of the fledgling church at this time. Now evidently, it's getting late whenever they approach Peter and John, so they decide to have them detained in the temple jail. And so they're held there until the next day whenever the uh, council can assemble in order to consider the matter of what John and Peter are preaching. In other words, they're asking themselves, what can we do to shut these guys up before we get trouble on our hands? Well, what's interesting to me is that verse 4 demonstrates that the Spirit didn't miss a beat. Peter and John are put behind bars, but the Spirit is unleashed. Many people, it says, who saw the, the miracle, who heard the message, believed. In fact, it says the number has now increased to now there are 5,000 among the believers. Well, I think that this just serves as proof that when we think things are bleak, God is still at work. We're in chains, but God is moving freely. Nevertheless, Peter and John are detained until they can stand trial. Verse 5 indicates that this council of rulers, of elders, of scribes, they assemble together the next day. So this would be known as what we call the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling body of the temple. It's made up of the uh, high priests um, and uh, the, the chief priest is the leader there. Verse 6 tells us a man named Annas was there who was the most influential Jewish leader of the day. He had been the high priest. Now his son-in-law Caiaphas is the chief priest. He had other sons and relatives who had become the chief priest. So very influential group that's here. He also, um, uh, we also know that there were other priestly leaders there. And what you can picture is this semicircle place where the, the uh, leaders are gathered around and they're standing at the center are the accused, Peter and John. Now what you should keep in mind is that this is the same body who had just weeks earlier gathered to put Jesus on trial. And they had found him guilty of blasphemy. And they had pressed for his crucifixion. So do you think that was maybe running through the minds of Peter and John as they're standing here in this assembly? Do you think their emotions are being stirred, thinking, what are we going to say? Or what are they going to do to us? It reminds me of a verse in Luke where Jesus foretells of a moment just like this. And he says, you know what, you're going to be brought before people. And in those moments when you don't know what to say, don't worry because I'll show up. It says in Luke 21, 15, For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. So the Sanhedrin begins their questioning. Now keep in mind, their primary reason for arresting these guys was not the miracle. 
They didn't say, you can't go and heal a lame man. They were more disturbed by the message. That's why they had gathered, that's why they had arrested them and brought them before the Sanhedrin. But their questioning makes you think that they're more frustrated with the miracle. They ask, by what power or in what name have you done this? Well, to be clear, the Sanhedrin wants to understand, what's your motive here? Why did you heal this guy? What, why are you preaching resurrection from the dead? Who's the one who's empowering this message? Who's the one who provided the healing for this man? Well, it's in this moment that we see Peter in his prime. He is a preacher among preachers. And the Holy Spirit comes on him in a powerful way. And all of a sudden, he speaks the truth in a very clear and compelling way, just as Jesus said he would give him the words to do. So look with me at verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter and John are standing there. They bring up exhibit A, the lame man who has been healed. And they say, you know, are, are you trying to find us guilty of doing a good deed? Are you trying to find us guilty? Because if so, guilty is charged. We can't argue. The guy has been healed. But if you're wanting to know by what power, by what name he was made well, that's kind of, do you want to know how he was made well? And I want to point out, Peter uses a particular Greek word here in saying made well. It's the Greek word sozo. He says, the word means healed or it means saved. And he says, are you wondering how this man was made well? How this man was made sozo? And then he boldly announces that the power that healed the man is the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Well, there's this theme that's beginning to develop here. And the theme that's developing is the healing name of Jesus. There is power for healing in the name of Jesus. Then he introduces a second theme. The second theme that he introduces here is the guilt of the Jewish leaders in rejecting Jesus. He's pointing out, y'all have rejected him and you're guilty for that. This is Jesus whom you have cru had crucified. But he also points out, but it was God who raised him from the dead. And then he references a scripture that everybody in the room would have been familiar with. Psalm 118, verse 22. says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So evidently, this is fascinating to me. Very early on, remember we are very early on after Jesus' resurrection. Now the believers are reading through the scriptures in a brand new way. They come to Psalm 118, 22, and you just have to wonder, was there somebody who said, guys, I think it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the one who became the chief cornerstone. He's been rejected. And so it's become a discussion among the believers, so much so that Peter clearly proclaims it before the Sanhedrin. And then he offers an appeal. Now it's not as overt as some of the appeals that Jesus makes. But it's implied here in verse 12. 
It says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. And what jumps out at me is that Peter says, by which we must be saved. So he is now lumping in the Sanhedrin and himself and this lame man. We all need to be healed. And he's using the same word when he talks about salvation. So just like this lame man was made sozo, there's only one name by which we must be made sozo. And it's the name of Jesus. So he lumps the Sadducees in, the high priest, the chief priest, all of them there together. We all need to be made healed, need to be healed. This lame man, it's obvious, but our healing is somewhere inside that needs to be taken place. We too must be made healed. Do you want to be whole like this healed man? Is, is, is what it sounds like Peter is saying. Then he's saying, then you too must be saved. Now Luke tells us that the members of the Sanhedrin were impressed by Peter and John's confidence. They're saying these are amateurs, but yet they spoke so boldly and so clearly. They're also described as recognizing them as those who had been with Jesus. And I wonder, are they thinking, oh yeah, I've seen you guys before. You are the guys who are with Jesus. Or are they saying, there's something unique about these guys. They remind me of somebody else we've met before. They're as unique as Jesus. They could tell these guys had been influenced by Jesus. Well, Luke also points out that the members of the Sanhedrin are staring the most compelling evidence in the face. The lame man who's standing in front of them. And so they're, they're speechless. They have nothing to say. Jesus gave words to Peter. These guys have nothing to say. So they have them taken away so they can confer together what they might do. I'm sure it was heated discussion. And then they said, you know what, we got to get these guys quiet. So verse 18 says, And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whatever it is, uh, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So Peter and John are formally rebuked and commanded to keep quiet about the Jesus stuff. Now you have to ask yourself, what would it take for me to be completely quiet about what I had experienced with regards to my relationship with Jesus? How much pressure would they have to apply? What sort of threats would they have to hurl at me for me to stay silent about what Jesus has done in my life? Now you have to think that you live in a nation where you have all the freedoms to share what Jesus has done in your life. You don't have threats coming against you that are as serious as the ones being brought against Peter and John. Are you vocal about your faith? Or does fear of what people may think, is that enough of a threat to keep you quiet about what Jesus has done? When the hammer is dropped on Peter and John, they say, we can't do it. We just can't keep quiet. We're going to be guilty of what you said. We can't do it. Well, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin just let them go on their way because they realize 
you know, we're going to have a political problem here because these people are so excited about what happened to the lame man, they're going to be mad at us if we do something to these guys. So they let them go on their own. So Peter and John go and gather with the other believers. They share what's happened before the Sanhedrin. Now think about those people. Do you think they were a little paranoid whenever Peter and John were brought before the same group that Jesus was brought before? Do you think they said, here it goes. Here's another one. I mean, you have to imagine that's exactly what is going on in their heart at this moment. <clears throat> so Peter and John tell them what happens. And what's their immediate response? Look at verse 24. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God. They immediately take it to the Lord. They don't say, you know what, we need to pray about that. They, they don't say, who can we go and talk to? Maybe, maybe that Nicodemus might stand up for us. Isn't he a part of the Sanhedrin? Or what about Joseph of Arimathea? They don't do that. They take their need to God. Do you know why? They believed that God hears prayers. They believed that God was listening. They believed that God could intervene. They believed that God cared about the concerns that they faced. And so rather than doing anything else that might make more sense... When you look with just human eyes, they say, we, let's take it to God. So they go to God with it. Well, what about you? Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe that God cares about the matters that are on your heart? Do you believe that God can answer your prayers? Well, the prayer they pray sounds a lot like Hezekiah's prayer in the Old Testament. It's a beautiful prayer that acknowledges and praises God for his sovereignty, even in the midst of all the things that they've experienced. And they're like Hezekiah just saying, our eyes are on you because we, we don't know what to do, God. What are we going to do in a moment like this? They, and Hezekiah prayed for deliverance, but listen to what Peter, John, and the other followers prayed. Verse 29, and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They don't pray for deliverance, they pray for courage. God, give us confidence to do what you've placed us here to do. They were not under any illusions that God owed them some sort of blessing in this physical life because they were following Jesus. They knew what it meant to align with Jesus. They had seen Jesus arrested. They had seen him betrayed and beaten. They had seen him crucified and killed. And so now they're saying we're aligning with him and we know what that means so God, just give us the courage to keep speaking because we imagine we're probably going to be continually brought before groups like this. And we're going to have to speak boldly about what's happened to us. That's what they ask for. And they say, God, you continue to pour out miracles and signs and healings. And you know what that would mean? The persecution would only increase. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So God immediately answers their prayer. When God got hold of Peter's life, he received a do-over and went on to become a bold agent for the kingdom of God. Y'all remember who Peter was? Peter, of course, is the fisherman who went to follow Jesus. He's kind of the wild-eyed one, you know. He's the one who would have followed Jesus into any fight. When the uh, temple guards came for Jesus, he's the one who pulled out the sword. You know, whenever Jesus was out walking on the water, he says, I want to do that too. When Jesus comes to wash his feet, he says, no, not my feet. You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, you can't have any part of me. And he says, then wash all of me, my whole body. 
And he said, I'll always be with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you're going to betray me. And foretells of three times that, Jesus, that Peter would betray Jesus. Peter says, there's no way. But sure enough, in Jesus' greatest moment, I mean, greatest need, Peter betrays the Lord. Says he never even knew him. I don't know him. You've got the wrong guy. That's not me. Not only did he deny Jesus, but the rest of the disciples along with him, Peter, they become absolutely discouraged after Jesus is killed and buried. All of their hopes and dreams are dashed. The disciples are hiding uh, while the, uh, you know, from the authorities in the wake of Christ's death. And all of a sudden, in a moment, something changes for them. Their whole outlook on life changes. It's because of the resurrection. Jesus, who had been dead and buried, is now alive and well. And their whole outlook changes. It was a game changer for them. Peter is not left on the shelf after denying Jesus. He's restored back into service, and now he gets the chance at a do-over. Well, the message for each of us today is this. The resurrection of Jesus and the promise of our own resurrection from the dead should motivate us to share what we have seen and heard. What that means is that no matter what happened in your past, no matter the times that you've let somebody down, you let God down, you let yourself down, no matter the whole period of time where you turned your back on the Lord, God has need for your life and your witness right now in this moment. And he's willing to use even you if you'll just say yes to him. Get your eyes off of the rearview mirror and start moving forward. Secondly, there's nothing more important, nothing more central than this truth. Jesus is alive. That single truth completely changed Peter. It had gotten into his bones. He couldn't stop talking about it. It was like a fire. Peter had truly accepted the truth that he had just proclaimed before the Sanhedrin. And there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. Now it's easy for us to sit here in these pews with the Bibles on our lap. Maybe in front of the television or watching online. And say, that's right, I agree with that. There's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus. And you believe that, theoretically. But what about practically? I'm afraid that many people in the church are practically universalists. You believe everyone is going to heaven. Now, you don't believe that because the scriptures say that. But it's the way that you live. Because you're not concerned about people who don't know about Jesus. You're not concerned enough to overcome your fears to share with them what God has done in your life. You're not alert enough to notice that there are people around you that are desperate for the hope that you have to offer them. Or maybe we're just practically polytheists. We think, well, there's many ways to God. We know the scriptures don't teach that. But we're not concerned about people that are following a false gospel. We think, well, in the end, I'll probably just shake out. Peter says there's salvation in no one else. That's a strong message. Salvation in no one but Jesus. Well, there are people in our world who have no access to hear about Jesus. They have no access to the scriptures, no access to the churches. If we believed that Jesus is the only way, how motivated would we be to make sure that the gospel is received by them? It says there's no other name under heaven that can save us than the name of Jesus. That means we can't save ourselves. That means our baptism can't save us. That means church attendance can't save us. Only the name of Jesus 
the problem is that we've not fully embraced the truth of the resurrection and of the gospel. For the last nine Sundays, I've proclaimed the stories of men and women whose lives were completely changed because of what happened when God got hold of their life. Well, what about you? Has Jesus made a difference in your life? If so, then you cannot keep quiet any longer. I'm going to tell you what I'm praying for. I'm praying for something significant in the life of each of the people that are here with us this morning. I am praying that you will be required to go vocal with the gospel this week. I am praying and trusting that God will give you utterance and wisdom just like he gave to Peter and John when you're put on the spot. I'm praying that you will have to articulate just how good God has been to you. And so when that opportunity arrives, will you say yes? It may be in a conversation where you need to insert something. It may be in a conversation you need to start. But will you say yes? We're about to have a time of response to this message. The difference between a speech and a sermon is a sermon is something you should always respond to. There should be some sort of response out of you. The truth is everybody responds. So how will you? Well, I'm going to invite you during this response time to ask yourself, am I willing to say yes when the doors open this week? To sharing what God has done in my life. And will you pray, God, just grant me the confidence to speak. Don't pray, God, deliver me from the moment. You say, God, give me the courage in the moment. Has God gotten hold of your life? Has the power of Christ's resurrection and the hope of your own resurrection gripped you? Well, may none of us who are here this morning keep silent about what you have been seen and what you have heard when it comes to Jesus and his work in your life. Our Father and God, we're so grateful that you did come after us. You did rescue us. God, and you offer us a glorious hope, a glorious resurrection, not because of anything that we've done, but 100% because of what you've done. So God, I pray, even now, that as we come to this moment of response, that everybody here would surrender now to being your witness. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. If God's speaking to your heart, I hope that you would respond. Some of you may need to respond to the gospel message of verse 12, saying, I need to call on the name of Jesus. Some of you may need to follow in believer's baptism or join the church. But I do believe that every single one of us who call us followers of Jesus, in this moment can say, God, I'll say yes to you this week as you provide me opportunity to share my story. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to have an invitation. I'll be down front if you want to respond. As our choir sings, you respond.
All right, I'm trusting you. You were singing, I surrender all. Now this week we get to put that in practice. Uh, a couple announcements to make. First of all, we have a team that just traveled to Egypt, and they are serving the Lord there uh, over the next uh, week, several days. Uh, so you be praying for the team of First Baptist Church folks that are serving right now in Cairo. We're so thankful for them. As we come to this uh, time of year, um, it's a time of serving and a time of giving uh, for the whole community, but that also means also for the church. And so, as you know, we've got Operation Christmas Child going on. I think you, you, the deadline is probably right now for uh, turning in uh, the boxes for that, so be sure you participate in that. We also have Blood Drive coming up. And then coming up on Thanksgiving Day, our church uh, for years and years have uh, been a part of Feeding the Hungry along with uh, St. Peter's. And so that's the same this year on, on Thanksgiving Day. If you're looking for a place to serve, you can, uh, there are some ways that you can provide, but you can also serve that day. That's coming up. Also, uh, the week after Thanksgiving is the Share Your Holiday Food Drive that our church um, hosts here in our parking lot. And then also... As a, uh, as a denomination, we remember uh, the need for uh, missions to the international field. And so we support the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and ask everybody to give specially uh, at Christmas to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And so just want to encourage you to participate in all those different ways of serving. We also have coming up, I know it's, uh, you know, um, turns cold, so that means the Christmas pageant's almost here. So I know they have tickets for that. And Steve... Um, I'm sure the tickets, they'll be giving them out after the service. Tickets are available after the service. Be sure and get them. We've given away thousands this week. We really have. And so it's, it's really great. And one thing that I would like to mention is this stand-up Commander Huggins, please, sir, right here. <laughs> He's not sure. Yeah, he is. I told him earlier in the week when I was in <laughs> the we The next two Sunday afternoons on the 17th and the 24th is when we put in some of the things for the Christmas pageant. Now, we have a circle of guys that have helped and helped and helped, but we need to make that circle bigger. So some of you may say, well, you know, I didn't know about that, or nobody's asked me. If you could be a part of helping us and be a part of that team,